Thank you for listening to this selection from bradhambrick.com. Brad serves as pastor of counseling at the Summit Church in Durham, North Carolina, and is excited to produce resources that equip believers and resource churches to care well for one another in their community. We pray that this serves you well, and we hope that you'll consider utilizing other resources from bradhambrick.com for your personal growth and ministry endeavors. So now we get to step six, uh, restructuring my life to rely on God's grace and word to transform my life. Uh, And I will admit, this is the part in the process that is just not as entertaining. Hopefully the presentation will still be engaging, but the other movements of what we've been talking about, they are, they're powerful. I mean, admitting my sin, it just, it it feels like something's breaking. And then I acknowledge the breadth and impact of it. And I I see it and I'm wincing. And I begin to understand the history and origin and motive. And I begin to feel a sense of hope. And I see myself truly in light of God's word. And then I repent. And there's this immense sense of relief and confession. It's hard and I fight it. But when I finally begin to invite people into my life, it it feels like something's moving and happening, and it, it's exciting. And then we get to restructuring my life. And this is where it begins to feel a little mundane. This is where it may not feel quite as relevant to the struggle as it was at the other steps. Where it requires a little more stick That other things can begin to feel like they're more important. And I just state that here as a word of caution and warning. That as you walk through your journey and you walk with other people, it is very common. We see it all the times in terms of salvation. Somebody gets saved and they're incredibly excited. And then when it comes to living that out, they just kind of fizzle. It's what Jesus told the parable of the seed. That some bear fruit, some sprout and they wither. Some, you know, that this is one of those crucial times where if we are truly going to immerse ourselves in the gospel, uh, we must do so even in the mundane. Um, Now, Tim Chester gets us off on a good foot here in terms of restructuring my life. He says, fleeing temptation may not be the complete solution, but it does buy time while we fight the fight of faith. Uh, What he's echoing here is 2 Timothy 2, 21 and 22. He says, therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master. Again, these are words of hope that that change can happen. And when it does, God uses us. But it says, so flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. Do I do this alone? No! No! with all those who call on the name of the Lord from a pure heart. And no answer and no technique will be a substitute from a fear of the Lord that makes me wise enough to run when sin presents itself. It is foolishness to think that courage and faith is the same thing as believing that God wants me to fight every fight that comes my way. 
The best fight that I can often fight if I'm struggling with pornography is to get away from the computer, out of the house if I'm there and my spouse is not home. Flee. Figure the rest out later. But don't go through these steps thinking, okay, I'm going to get all of this right and then I won't have to do that anymore. There will always be time. Because we have a real adversary who is planning for our destruction, that the best and only outlet is to just get away from the opportunity to to sin. Now, Chris Lungard gives us a picture of maybe how, how, how we should think about this. He says, suppose your biology one-on-one professor handed you a live wolverine and asked you to dissect it, but you had no anesthetic uh, and no way to tie the beast down. What if you talked nicely to the wolverine? Now, sir, if you would just sit still, I would try to get this over as quickly as possible. All you would see is bare teeth and flying claws and violent resistance to your experiment. Your flesh won't sit still for meditation and prayer and any more than a wolverine would submit to surgery. Scripture calls us to put our flesh to death. Like any other living thing, our flesh has a vested interest in not dying. Let us not be foolish or naive about what we are fighting. Now, it, uh, this is where we almost get the satire, uh, where somebody would say, yeah, quitting smoking is easy. I've done it like 37 times. Uh, quitting pornography is easy. I mean, how many times have I quit pornography? Well, we haven't done the kind of surgery Yet we haven't taken it as seriously as we need to. This is where we have to recognize we are not just fighting a bad habit. We are having our very nature transformed. Scripture says that we are fallen, broken creatures. That we were born with broken, self-centered natures. And sin capitalizes on that. But it is sin that is capitalizing on our broken nature. And when we fight sin, we are fighting both sin and that brokenness within us. And that's why we must do everything necessary to engage in that battle. That means trying to show self-control in all areas of my life. Because rarely does somebody struggle with a life-dominating sin and the rest of their life stays really neat and tidy. Let me offer some ideas here. Your money. Uh, You need an open system for your finances where somebody else, if you're married, your spouse, if you're not married, where somebody else has an idea of what you're doing with your money and you don't have secret funds. Because let's face it, The pornography industry is not a service industry. It's a money-making industry. And it's really good at it. When you look at the statistics of how much money is made in pornography, it is shocking. The pornography industry brings in more money 
than ABC, NBC, CBS, and Fox combined. The pornography industry makes more money than Major League Baseball, the NBA, the NFL, and hockey combined. They don't care about you. They want your money. And if I'm going to battle sexual sin, why don't I make the thing that they want most, most transparent? It just makes sense. Your schedule. Um, having unaccounted for time. Dark times in your schedule is just a bad idea. Especially if the struggle has been adultery, infidelity. It, part of this, this is where oftentimes we get to the point where after a crisis, healthy feels like punishment. And an open, transparent schedule within a marriage is not punishment. It's healthy. And if you're getting defensive, going, how long are you going to know where I'm at? What do you think you signed up for in a one flesh relationship? Let us not begin to think that after a crisis, healthy is punishment. This is like the person who goes into a lot of debt. They get a budget. They hate the budget. They feel like the budget's a bad thing. A budget's just healthy. Sorry to break that news. I know that, wow, it's heavy on top of everything else we're talking about. But a budget is just part of healthy. But then we get out of debt, and it's like, whoo, glad I'm done with that budget. Let's go on a cruise and get more debt. That's not real smart. It, and so we want to be transparent. Authority. Oftentimes when we have been sinning, we don't like authority and we don't show self-control in the area of authority. We don't want to submit to God's moral authority, Him being Lord over our life, and we don't want to submit to the authority of accountability, allowing other people to know us and live in biblical community. We have to be self-controlled in the area of our spiritual disciplines. Bible reading, daily exposing our life to the light of God's Word so there's not shadow areas for these false narratives to build up. Prayer. Prayer is a beautiful opportunity. Most of the time we sin sexually because we want love. Love is not a thing. God is love. And He invites us to come and talk with love Himself without ceasing. How do we ever think we are going to overcome sexual sin that is rooted in such a deep desire for love if we are hesitant to pray and talk with love Himself? Let us show self-control in that area until we learn to enjoy it. And self-control in our area of pleasures. You may be surprised to hear me say this. If you struggle with sexual sin, you need to learn to play in healthy ways. Because when we start to overcome sexual sin, we begin to think that anything we enjoy is bad. It's not. God created us to enjoy life. But He gave us pleasures and defined the kinds of pleasures that would not wreck our life, our family's life, that wouldn't come with this awkwardness of guilt and shame and isolation. 
And if we're ever going to overcome sexual sin, we're going to learn to play. We're going to learn to live beyond the moment in terms of our pleasures. That's what adults do. I'm not trying to be condescending or pedantic. But adults learn to live beyond the moment. And they can see the pleasure that comes with investing in things that matter. And they can see the pain that comes with investing in things that don't matter. Kids don't do that. And so part of maturity is having wholesome pleasures. Now under this idea of having self-control in the area of our pleasures, uh, for some of you who are married and your sexual sin has taken on a highly addictive nature, as we talked about in chapter 1, I'm going to advise something that will probably seem a little shocking. I'm going to ask that you go on a 90-day sexual fast. For several reasons. One, you are never going to see life correctly until you realize that sex is not ultimate. As long as you believe that sex is ultimate, it will distort everything else that you see in life. Two, there's a little bit of detox involved. You know, we talked about the physical buildup and that kind of thing, and I said it's not ultimate, but I didn't say it wasn't significant. Uh, there is a time period where you need to recalibrate your sexual expectations and the kind of pressures that you've been putting on your spouse that just makes for really bad, awkward, pressured sex. There needs to be a bit of a break from that. Even some of you who are single uh, may need to go on a sexual fast. And there it wouldn't be one that you come off of until you're married. But that can be a way where you say, God, in the same way that there are times when I fast and I give up food so that I can focus on Him and prayer and something that's more important. Well, in this sense, we are giving up something bad that is sinful and it's not the same as giving up food. But it can be something that helps us get our minds around what we're doing and helps us see that we are doing this to please and honor God uh, and that He can be pleased by it. Uh, now, Steve Arterburn takes our thoughts a little further. He says, you see, sexual impurity isn't like a tumor growing out of control inside us. When we treat it that way, our prayers focus on deliverance as we plead for someone to come and remove it. Actually, sexual impurity is a series of bad decisions on our part, a result of an immature character. And deliverance won't deliver you in, into instant maturity. Character work needs to be done. You will have to take by faith that once you get your eyes and mind under control, the sexual pressure will drop off dramatically. You bring most of the sexual pressure onto yourself through visual, sensual stimulation and mental fantasy. Now I want to address the two halves there. Because the first part doesn't quite fit with everything that we've been saying. I think it helps us in one sense, but not totally. Uh, Arter burn, at least in my opinion, is much weaker on the view of sin as condition. And therefore, he is much more willing to call it a series of bad choices. Uh, I think it is much more than a series of bad choices. It is the expression of the condition of our heart. Um, now, uh, 
The second part of what he's saying there is we do bring a lot of this on ourselves. And if we quit feeding this lust, the battle would be much less intense. But we're handing it a stake while we're trying to stab it. We're getting it stronger trying to kill it. Um, And so there's some areas where I would say in order to begin to reform our character, as I would agree with Arterburn, that there is an overarching character work that needs to be done there. Uh, that there's some areas where we just need to commit to live in God's reality. One of those is with our physical bodies. We need to step back and look at our sleep, our diet, our exercise, our time management, and our use of substance. We cannot treat our bodies like a rag doll and expect them to hold up in the fight of faith. Even Jesus in Gethsemane prayed for His disciples. Their spirit is willing, but their flesh is weak. Let us give ourselves every competitive advantage by making sure that we are living balanced, healthy lives. Because if one of the primary triggers slash motives for sexual sin is stress, and we're living an unhealthy life, again, we're feeding the very thing we're trying to kill. Another area where we need to live in God's reality is emotionally. Part of what this means is redefining the word reward. A bad definition of the word reward is a form of self-deception. It's a form of self-manipulation. Ultimately, it's a form of abuse. When I tell myself that something is a reward, it is good, it's what I'm going to work for, it's what I'm going to give myself when I have done what I should do, and that thing is going to destroy me. That is self-abuse. And we have to see it that way and live in reality as God defined it, or we're going to continue to believe the lie. Part of living in God's reality emotionally is just stopping the fantasy earlier and earlier. In chapter 3, all of those different little narratives of what we were wanting, of what sin was doing for us, we need to learn to have ears to hear when that is coming up within our emotions so that we can say, Ah, I caught you! No! And catch that sooner and sooner so that we can be encouraged. Encouraged while being humble. Humble enough to see that I am still weak, but encouraged to say God's grace was there. He gave me eyes to see and I got it. And that kind of aggressive, I want to fight this and get rid of it. It is a fight of faith. This is the tone in which we must engage it. And then we want to live in God's reality logistically. Having a computer filter, having accountability software, uh, eliminating forms of access. Go through your full disclosure. Look at everything that you could do to logistically make sin off limits. You are never going to completely make sin off limits. Because sin is something that hunts you. Sin is a predator. But you can put up wise parameters in your life. Go through your full disclosure and do that. Uh, Another piece here from David Pallison. If you're a man, start viewing women as your sisters. 
as people to protect instead of prey upon. If you are a woman, start treating men as your brothers rather than turning them into romantic erotic objects. If you are married, begin the hard work of building an honest relationship where sexuality becomes one of the fruits of your unity as a couple. Again, that's what we've got to see about sex. That it is meant to be the fruit of unity within covenant. Any other view of sex uh, is off. It, one of the dominant metaphors in Scripture for who we are with one another is family. And that's not just so we can stereotypically say, Hey, brother, how you doing? It is to remind us of how we are to view one another as family. Um, it, and what I think this requires is applying wisdom in all of our relationships. Uh, and I'll, I'll unpack kind of three areas where I think that comes in. One is we just need to identify some unhealthy relational patterns. Um, crude humor. Crude humor is a great door for sexual sin to get into your life. Because laughter makes everything seem more innocent. Uh, evasive communication. If you find yourself not wanting to talk about something because it is related to a point where you have either sinned or are tempted to sin, and you start playing that six degree of separation game, Be warned, that is an unhealthy relational pattern where you are not treating people like family. This is why oftentimes a marriage deteriorates while somebody is sinning sexually because I don't want to talk about this because that's where I sin and this is connected to that. And if I talk about this, then and pretty soon we don't have anything to talk about anymore. And we don't have anything in common. And this just isn't that fulfilling of a relationship. And I really think that's why I'm sinning is because this isn't a fulfilling relationship. When it's backwards. This isn't a fulfilling relationship because I started playing the six degree of separation game and pretty soon I couldn't talk about anything of interest that we would engage in and be meaningful about what God was doing in our life. We need to be very careful about feeding gender stereotypes. I think one of the tragedies of sexual sin in our day is the way that it has exaggerated the differences between men and women. Real differences that do exist. But think about this a moment, reflecting back to where we were. Uh, we have a media industry that is trying to do everything they can to make things seem appealing. That's what they do. They're trying to make money. I'm not mad at them for it. But they're going to take whatever it is that you enjoy as a man, and they are going to present it to the nth degree. And they're going to take whatever you enjoy as a woman, and they're going to present it as the nth degree. And we are such a... Media-saturated, story-driven, professional storyteller, professional sexual athletes, professional romantic narratives to where we get to see the very best of what the most talented people on the entire globe can do in those areas. And it fuels the differences in who we are as men and women to where we begin to feel like we are from Mars and Venus. But when I read Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, even Genesis 3, 
the differences are oftentimes not nearly as severe as our sexually stereotype-fueled culture tends to present them to be. And when we begin to unplug from those hyper-stereotyped media outlets, or at the very least, begin to filter them through with a much greater degree of skepticism instead of just letting them wet our appetite with salt water, I think we will find that our genders are much more compatible and cohesive and enjoyable relationships than we found them to be. Another piece, unhealthy relationship patterns. Don't flirt. Got a whole section in there on flirting. I had to look it up. I'm not that good at flirting. I admit I went to flirting blogs, all that kind of thing. I'll let you look at it. That is not a training manual. Okay? Don't look at it that way. And avoid people who engage in these patterns. Purity is a community changer. That is what 2 Timothy 2.22 was all about. Healthy relationship patterns. See people as real people. Um, There's no such thing as real people in fantasies. No movie, no porn, no adultery relationship is real. It's all built upon people at their best where they don't get to be tired, they don't get to have headaches, they don't have bad days. None of that stuff happens. View people as real people. Love in a real story. If your view of love doesn't involve going through life struggles together, you got the wrong view of love. And you're going to start to hide your life from other people because you think they are as self-centered and guarded as you are. You will make people in your own image. It will add to the isolation of what's going on in your life. When you begin to view love as involving the real life struggles, it will open up relationships in a way that is really beautiful and satisfying. Cultivate quality same-sex friendships. Uh, One of the things that I think we do with Genesis 2.18, where it says it's not good for man to be alone, we take that and make it all about marriage and all about sex. And again, I think marriage and sex is a part of what was being said there. But if we make it all about marriage and all about sex, then every single person in the room just caught the raw end of the deal. When God created woman, He didn't just make marriage. He made community. He made friendship. Without a man and woman to have children so that there would be more people, we would never be able to express the image of a triune God, not a two-people God, not God the Father and Jesus as if it was just a community God we would never be able to express that. And so part of the healthy relationship that Genesis 2.18 was correcting was that full aspect of community. And then finally, healthy relationship patterns in marriage. Here I will make a huge differentiation that I see very often get missed in recovery in this area and causes great pain even to those who are sincerely trying to work on their marriage. They confuse marital restoration with marital enrichment. And they start trying to do all of the good things that they should have been doing before in order to heal what they destroyed. Marital enrichment and marital restoration are two different things. 
when a covenant has been violated and there is that level of brokenness and pain that has been brought into the marriage, then there is work that needs to be done in the area of healing and restoration of that marriage so that marital enrichment can be received and embraced and we could become the couple that God intended us to be all along. But that's why with these materials, we are doing false love and true betrayal to work on the marital restoration part. Following after that, we're going to be doing a five-part series on marriage that will be the marital enrichment part. But this part is not the same as marital enrichment. And we are saying, I'm going to go on dates, I'm going to get you flowers, I'm going to do this, we'll have lots of sex, you know, whatever you want to do. That is treating marital restoration as marital enrichment. And it is very offensive and harmful in the midst of this kind of marriage. Now, if your spouse asks you and says, it would be nice if we went on some dates and we could have some talks, I'm not against doing those things at the same time. But if you push this as if it's a replacement for that, in the name of helping, you're making things worse. Yet, another thing we have to recognize is that marital sex is not a lust replacement. Because when we, when we begin to view it that way, then we begin to take the standard of lustful sex and place it on marital sex, and they're just different things. Um, and then finally, you should keep your spouse informed. You should give your spouse regular updates on how you're doing in your struggle with sexual sin, whether you've been contacted by your adultery partner, how things are going on the computer, until the point where they say something to you like, okay, I believe you, I trust you. I know you're talking to your accountability partner. You're connected with people. I don't need to know this anymore. If you struggle, if your accountability partner thinks you need to tell me something, please do. But otherwise, right now, I'm okay with you just being my spouse. Until then, keep your spouse regularly informed. One final thought on step six. I think this is a beautiful quote. If you can tell, I like quotes. Uh, Tim Chester says, Our view of sex uh, becomes detached from relationship and intimacy. Sex and porn, this is not the beautiful part, it's at the end, sorry. Um, sex and porn is not just physical, act, it's just physical activity and nothing more. Real sex, sex as God intended, is the celebration and climax, quite literally, of a relationship. Godly sex is part of a package that includes talking together, sharing together, deciding together, crying together, working together, uh, laughing together, forgiving each other. Orgasm comes at the end of a process that began with offering a compliment, doing the chores, recalling your day, unburdening your heart, tidying the house. Sex that disregards this is hollow. If your view of sex has personal gratification or a chance to enact your fantasy, if you have sex while disregarding intimacy or unresolved conflict, then the sex will be bad in both senses of the word. Poor quality and ungodly. And I would put this challenge in front of you. We give you lots of passages of Scripture to memorize as you go through this study. But if you read that and you say, that's not how I view sex, memorize that quote. I think it is a beautiful, not divinely inspired, but a beautiful, accurate picture of what God intended sex to be. It, and so my question would be, how much does this rattle your narrative of sex? When you read that, you go, whoa, great sex! 
If not, then that is the level of imagination that we need to begin to engage. Our fantasy of sex needs to involve these kinds of interactions. If your fantasy of sex involves this, it will either be with your spouse or with your future spouse because there's just not that many people you want to put this much work into. But it's worth it. And it's beautiful. And it's precious. And it's satisfying in the way that nothing else can be. And if you're in a dating relationship and you don't have this yet, then hold off on marriage because sex won't make this. Now, I guess a way that I would summarize this point. Sex is a celebration. It's not recreation. Sex is the celebration of a covenant and all of the good things that God gives and does through that covenant. It's not mere recreation. And that's what we need to remember uh, in terms of having a healthy view of sex, at least off of that quote.